So I'm in uh, the ancient stadium uh, that was used during Paul's day. Uh, this is a stadium that has yet to be excavated. Um, the, uh, the original stadium that dates back to uh, the 6th century BC is one that we were able to see. Uh, we're not able to film there. Here we can film, but this has yet to be uncovered. Um, this is the, the track where the runners ran. Uh, this um, is the place that Paul would have seen runners who were competing in the Isthmian Games. Um, again, the Isthmian Games were played every two years. Uh, the Isthmian Games were part of uh, several games, the Olympic Games, there were other games. Um, they were designed in a way where um, a Greek citizen, a Roman citizen, anyone um, could go to a game every summer. Every summer they were able to see a game somewhere. Uh, Paul would have been here. Paul sold tents here um, in this location. Uh, and Paul would have seen these runners running. So here in this stadium, it was a it was a rectangle stadium. It was a rectangle track. It was not uh, an oval track. The runners would begin at one end. <clears throat> there would be a, a bar that would block the runners. Uh, there would be wires that a, um, an individual would hold. And when it was time for the runners to take off, he would let go of the wires. The bar would drop. They would run. They would run toward a pole, towards a post, towards a fixed point at the other end. They would go around it and they would run back sometimes back again and then around the pole again. The one who won received a prize. <clears throat> the prize was not a crown as we see here in many translations. The, the prize was a wreath. Um, the, whatever God that the games were dedicated to, like here in, in uh, Corinth, um, the Isthmian games, they were dedicated to the god Poseidon. Whatever plant was the plant of that particular God, they would take it and they would make it into a wreath. Uh, the uh, athlete who won would be given that wreath uh, when they won. And then at the end of the games, they would be paraded in front of the spectators um, and wearing that wreath, there would be great cheers. Uh, it would be a great honor. Paul uses the imagery of a runner in a game, in the Isthmian games, competing for a prize. And here's what Paul wrote. Uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Thank you for being with us in worship today. 
Uh, several weeks ago, I uh, came across an article on ESPN.com, and the article really focused not just on his basketball career, but what he has done since basketball. And the writer of the article talked about interviewing him and how his cell phone rang the whole time and how he's um, in his corporate office as the owner of the Charlotte Hornets and um, as a um, owner of uh, or an investor in NASCAR and all these other business ventures, how he just stays busy all the time. There's always something that's happening. There's always something that's going on. And how successful he has been since basketball, since he retired from basketball. However, throughout the article, there was this, this sense of sadness, um, kind of like a lostness that you could feel that that Michael Jordan had this nostalgia for basketball back for the days when he was playing um, and almost like he lacked direction in his life now. Uh, in fact, there was one particular quote that I pulled out of the article that really hit me. The writer wrote this, his self-esteem has always been, as he said, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years, since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance, and wondering, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Now, if you're a sports fan and I was to ask you to name the top 10 athletes that we've seen in the last 100 years, my guess is Michael Jordan would probably be on your list. I mean, arguably the greatest basketball player that we have seen, played much longer than most players, set all kinds of records. I mean, this guy definitely would be in the top when we talk about the top athletes. And if you're really a sports fan, I said, okay, tell me the top 10 athletes who have had the best post-pro sports career. Again, Michael Jordan would probably make the list. I mean, here's a guy who is an owner of an NBA team, who's part owner of a NASCAR um, uh, driver or, or company. Here's a guy who has invested in all kinds of businesses. I mean, he even was in his own movie, Space Jam. I mean, this guy has had incredible success. And so as I read this article, I thought, well, if this guy has struggled with a lack of purpose in his life, what about the rest of us? What about us regular Joes you know, who haven't had this kind of incredible success in life, who don't have so much wealth that we can buy a couple islands in the Caribbean or you know, we don't have our own private jet or we've never gotten to star in a movie next to Bugs Bunny? You know? What about the rest of us? You know, and, and my guess is that all of you in here, all of us at some point, we have stopped and said, is this what I'm doing right now? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing in life? What is my purpose? You know, why am I here? And the truth is, most of the time we're so busy and we're running from one thing to the next and there's kids and there's our jobs and we've got all of these distractions. But in those quiet moments, you're driving down the road and the radio's off and your cell phone's not ringing. Or you get up in the morning and you're having that coffee and, and you're just reflecting on your life. My guess is, is that there's been a few times that you've thought, is this it? Is this what I'm supposed to do? And you've likely asked this question, what should my purpose be? 
What is there in life that is so worthwhile that it is worth me giving my life to that thing? What should the direction of my life be? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We are continuing our series, as you saw in the video, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, If you've got a Bible with you, whether it's paper or digital, uh, and you want to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, it's right after Romans, right before 2 Corinthians. And if you've been here with us for this series, you know that we have talked about the fact that we call it a book, but 1 Corinthians was originally a letter. Uh, It was written by this guy named Paul who had planted a church in the ancient city of Corinth. Uh, He spent about a year and a half there in Corinth with the church, and then he left. uh, And about 18 months after he left, the church in Corinth sent him a letter with all kinds of questions. And 1 Corinthians is his response to their letter, to the questions that they had. Several weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where where the church asked Paul a question about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, uh, to Greek gods in their temples. And they basically said, hey, Paul, do we have the right, morally speaking, is it okay for us to eat this meat? And Paul said, absolutely. You've got the right to do that. Those gods aren't real. You can eat the meat. Uh, The meat was sold at a discounted rate in the marketplace. So they said, can we go and eat this meat? And Paul said, absolutely. It's just a steak. It's just a ribeye. You can eat the meat. However, if you're eating that meat causes someone else to stumble in their faith, in other words, if it causes them to drift back into a lifestyle of worshiping one of those Greek gods, then you need to give up your freedom to eat that meat for the sake of your brother. You've got the right, but do not use that right if it's going to harm someone else. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul picks up on this same idea of our rights as followers of Christ. So we'll start in verse 1. Here's what Paul wrote. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul begins here with a defense of his status as an apostle. Now, if you're new to church, that term may be a little bit foreign to you. When we talk about Jesus and his 12 disciples, that terminology is not exactly right. It's a little misleading. Now, when we say disciple, that is anyone who's a follower of Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, you are a disciple of Christ. When we say apostle, that refers specifically to these individuals who were called by and commissioned by Jesus. Uh, In fact, there are three criteria for an apostle. The first is that they were called and commissioned by Jesus. Secondly, they saw the resurrected Jesus. After Jesus was raised from the dead, they visibly saw Jesus. And thirdly, that they performed miracles, essentially to validate the fact that they were apostles. There were 12 apostles, minus Judas, who betrayed Jesus, plus Matthias, who replaced Jesus, plus Paul, who came later. And there were some who questioned Paul's status as an apostle because he did not 
uh, fit in the original group of 12. He came later. However, he fit the criteria. He was commissioned by Jesus very clearly. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and Paul was able to perform miracles. So Paul here says, look, I know that there are question marks out there about whether or not I'm an apostle. However, for you in Corinth, my status as an apostle should never be called into question because you are the result of my work. You are the result of my work as an apostle. And while others may say we're not sure whether Paul is an apostle or not, you guys know it because you have seen what I, what I did, and you guys are the result of my work. So why does Paul spend so much time defending his status as an apostle? It's because of what he wrote next. Look at verse 3. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers in Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Okay, so here's why Paul defends his status as an apostle. The other apostles were being paid by the churches for their work in the ministry. He mentions specifically here Cephas. If you look in your Bible, there's probably a footnote in the in the bottom that says, that is Peter. Peter, one of the 12 apostles, was paid by the churches for his work in the ministry. He mentions the brothers of the Lord. One of those we know was James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem. James was paid by the church for his work in the ministry. Now, Paul here was not married at this point. Some scholars believe that he had been married. That's really not known for sure. And if he was, what happened to his wife? We have no idea. Paul here says, look, don't we have the right, whether I'm married or not, to require payment for our work so that we can support ourselves and that we can support our families? Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to this in just a minute. Why he says he shouldn't have to have a side job uh, for his work in the ministry. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? So here Paul makes two arguments as to why he should be paid by the Corinthian church for his work in the ministry and with them. The first is, is just common sense. If a soldier works in the army, he gets paid for his work. If a farmer plants a field, he gets to take from those crops. If, if someone tends uh, livestock, they get the milk from that livestock. He says, first of all, it just makes sense that people get paid for their work. 
The second thing is it's more than just common sense, but it's actually a biblical command. And here he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, where it says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. And if you're not a farmer, you're like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, an ox treading out the grain would be allowed to eat the grain so that he would have energy so that he could keep working. A muzzle would prevent the ox from eating the grain. And Paul here says, look, that verse is not about the ox. It's about us. It's about people. We have a right. The Bible says that we have a right to get paid for our work. Now, for some reason, and we're not exactly sure, the Corinthians did not financially support Paul. And here he makes a very strong argument that they should have paid him, that he had a right to require them to pay him for the ministry that he did in their city and in their church. Very strong argument that he makes. However, look what he wrote next. But we did not use this right. We did not use this right. Wait a second, Paul. You just made this strong argument. The other apostles are getting paid. It's just common sense that someone who is working should get paid. It's even part of the scriptures that you should get paid. You make a very clear and compelling case that those in Corinth should have paid you for the work, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ, which the church in Corinth would have readily acknowledged. When Paul was in Corinth, he met a couple that worked in the tent-making industry. They had experience. They, they understood how to make and repair tents. Paul had a background in making and repairing tents. He partnered with this couple, and there they set up a tent-making, a tent-repairing business in Corinth. You heard in the video earlier I mentioned the Isthmian Games. They took place at a location about three or four miles just outside the city of, of, of Corinth. And so the citizens in Corinth would go to these summer games that happened every two years, and they would travel from their homes in Corinth to the place where the games happened, but it was three or four miles. And they didn't want to make the trek back and forth every day for the game. So what would they do? They would take tents with them. They would spend their time at the games in tents, you know, spending the night in tents during the games. Like someone today who goes to a NASCAR event and they take their RV and they spend the night in the RV during that event. That's what they did in Corinth when they went to the Isthmian Games, which meant that someone who had been to the games two years before and they pull out that tent from two years before, there's a good chance they're going to look and, oh no, there's a, a tear in the tent. The seam has come apart. We need to get this tent repaired. Paul and this other couple set up their business and they were able to support themselves during this time without having to take a uh, Time without having to take a penny from the church. Now, Paul easily could have said, I'm not doing this. I'm not working as a tent maker. Come on, I'm an apostle. I've been called by the Lord. 
And, and look how busy I am. I'm preaching the gospel. I, I am discipling people in the church. I am helping you understand how to organize the church. I'm doing all of this work. I shouldn't have to work on the side as a tent maker as well. Paul easily could have made this demand. And we know from other passages that Paul was supported by other churches. Uh, the church in Philippi is one that we know financially supported Paul. However, the church in Corinth did not. And Paul did not demand for them to financially support him. Why? Because he said, we will put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I think, this is just my opinion, I think that there was a level of cynicism in Corinth that wasn't um, present in other churches. I think because of all the problems we read about in that church, because of all the issues they had, I think there was a level of cynicism there. And Paul understood this. And Paul knew that if he said to the church in Corinth, you need to support me financially while I'm working among you, that there would be some in the church who would say, well, there goes Paul. He's just trying to pad his pocket. Paul's not interested in the gospel. Paul's interested in getting rich so he can move on from here and go to some other city and, and ask for more money. Paul understood that in Corinth, there were those who were just cynical and they would have made these accusations even without any kind of foundation. And that would hinder the gospel. So Paul said, I will give up my right. I will not assert my right because it might hinder the gospel. Then skip down to verse 19. Paul said, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. This is a passage that at times has been misinterpreted and misapplied. There are those who have read this passage and they have said something like this. Hey, I'm just going to be like Paul and I'm going to be all things to all people. So I, when I'm with my school buddies, I'm going to be like my school buddies. When I'm with my church friends, I'm going to act like my church friends. When I'm with my sports team, I'm going to act like the guys of my sports team. When I'm with my drinking buddies, you know, I want to be all things to all people. I want to be relevant. You know, I want, want to become all things to all people so that I might win some to Christ. That's not what Paul was talking about here. That's not at all what he was driving at. What Paul was talking about here was his willingness to give up his rights for the sake of the gospel. So when he was with those who were Jewish in background, Paul acted like an individual who was Jewish, meaning he followed the ceremonial law. Even though Paul 
clearly said that he did not have to follow the law when he was with those who had that as a background, he followed the law. He ate kosher food. He followed their rituals. He followed their ceremonies. Why? Because he did not want something as trivial as that to get in the way of him having the opportunity to share Christ with them. And so he would only eat kosher foods. Otherwise, they would say, oh, well, Paul, you're not, you're not very religious. You know, you're not following the ceremonial law. Fine, then I'm going to follow the law even though I have the right not to. Then when he was with those who were not Jewish, the Greeks and the Romans, and they had no clue about the Jewish law, he wouldn't follow the Jewish law. He would eat whatever was put in front of him. He didn't reference the rituals. He didn't follow all of those traditions. He gave up his heritage and what he had grown up practicing for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because if he started bringing out all of these laws that they were unfamiliar with, they would have been like, what is this? We don't get it. He said, I I will give that up for the sake of the gospel. When he was with the weak, which doesn't mean wimpy, it means those whose faith wasn't quite as mature. When he was with the weak, he would not eat certain foods if it would cause them to stumble. He said, look, I, I will give up the steak. I will give up the ribeye, the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. I will give up those things. I will give up my rights for the sake of the gospel. Again, all of this goes back to this laser-like purpose that Paul had in his life. And we'll talk about this in just a second. So here's how he concludes that passage, verse 24. Here's what Paul wrote. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Now, this is a passage that I read earlier um, in the video. Um, Corinth was a sports crazy town. There, There are so many parallels between the culture of Corinth and the culture of our society today, and this is one. They were sports crazy. Um, The Corinthians would have had a lot of sympathy with us in this room who watched our team get right to the edge of making it to the World Series and, you know, to to right there at the end to lose. I mean, they would have said, hey, man, we get it. You got to take a couple days off of work because of that. We get it. You know, we, we love sports that much. I mean, they were absolutely sports crazy. So Paul here uses these three analogies that they would have understood, that we understand as well, all about having the right purpose in life. And if I was to take this passage and sum it up as to what what Paul said was his purpose in life, here's what I would say. A servant to all for the sake of the gospel. A servant to all, not just to be a servant, a servant to all for the sake of the gospel. Paul said, I'll give up whatever right, whatever privilege, whatever freedom I have, if it means the gospel will advance, if it means that people will come to know Christ. 
So how does this look? That's what Paul breaks down in this last passage. A servant to all for the sake of the gospel means, number one, a willingness to sacrifice. Paul in this passage rightly pointed out that a great athlete is willing to make sacrifices. He said this in verse 25, everyone who competes in the games, what do they do? They go into strict training. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. We know this. Someone who is a great athlete, they sacrifice a lot. They sacrifice sleep. They get up early and train. They sacrifice donuts. They sacrifice just lying around. I mean, they sacrifice a lot. Why? Because they have a purpose. They have a focus. They want to win. They sacrifice their rights and their privileges for the goal of winning. Paul used this very familiar analogy to help us understand what it means to follow Christ. We willingly give up certain rights. We make sacrifices for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because the last thing we want is anything, anything at all, to hinder the gospel. Therefore, we might say, well, this is my preference, and this is my right, and this is what I ought to be able to do, but I'm not going to do it. Why? So the gospel can go forth. This church was planted here a little over two decades ago. And when this church was planted, the vast majority of churches in our community and around our nation all did what we would call traditional worship. So an organ, a piano, a choir, um, you'd sing three hymns, you know, that was it, maybe four hymns, out of a hymn book, you know, no screens. I mean, that's just how worship was done. You didn't raise your hands in worship. Well, you couldn't because you had to hold the hymn book. You could raise one, I guess, if you balanced the hymn book. I mean, that was just how worship was done. But when this church was planted, things were beginning to change. And a younger generation was coming along that said, you know, we, we think we want to worship in a different way. We don't want to change the message. Message is the same. We just, we want to update the worship style. So drums and, and a guitar and screens and, you know, raising your hands, all, all of that. That was fairly new. But when this church was planted, there were a number of people who had come out of that very traditional background who said, we're going to do this. And in fact, I have had numerous conversations over my 13 years here, at least a couple of uh, dozen conversations, some of them with people in this room right now. And all of these conversations have gone something like this. You know, I came out here to this particular church and I was part of this plant and I was working you know, in this plant, but that whole contemporary worship thing was just not my deal. You know, it's not what I grew up with. It's not my preference. It's not my style. It's not what I really like. You know, I'd rather go back to hymns. I'd rather go back to an organ and a piano. However, I looked around and I saw all of these teenagers and all of these 20-somethings worshiping, coming to Christ, hearing the gospel. And I said, I'm willing to give up my preferences and my privileges and what I think should be my rights for the sake of the gospel. That is the kind of attitude that Paul is talking about here. Hey, maybe I can say, you know, this is, I've been here a long time. I've helped support the church and this is what I want and this is my preference. I will give that up for the sake of the gospel. 
The second analogy that, that Paul used in being a servant was staying focused. Look at verse 26. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. This is what I talked about in the video earlier. A runner would start at a fixed point and run in a straight line to a post or a pole. They would run around that pole. They would run back. Sometimes they'd go back again and come back again. They did not run on an oval track. And so the runner who won the race wasn't always the fastest. It was the one who stayed focused on that fixed point ahead of him. Otherwise, he would veer off track and have to run further. Uh, Paul uses the analogy of a boxer. A boxer doesn't just beat the air. A boxer has a focus, the jaw of his opponent. That's where he's going to punch if he wants to win the match. Paul here uses that illustration in talking about the Christian life. I think a great modern-day illustration that, that came to mind when I read this passage um, is that of Tiger Woods. Love him or hate him, when Tiger Woods uh, first appeared on the golf scene, he brought something to the game of golf that had not been there before. This focus and this determination that just wasn't present before. And, and at the height of his career, you could watch him in some tournament and it would be Sunday, the very last match. He would be 15 strokes ahead, two holes left. I mean, he had the, the whole tournament won and it didn't matter. He was still just as focused as he could be, not talking to his opponent, not really talking to his caddy much, not talking to anyone in the gallery, not, no expression on his face, just focused on golf. And it wouldn't be until the very last putt fell in the hole that he would finally smile and celebrate and hug his caddy and, and even acknowledge that anyone else was around. That's the kind of focus that Paul is talking about here. That as followers of Christ, the gospel is at the very center of who we are. And maybe you're a, a banker or you're in medicine or you, you work in the construction field, whatever it is, and you do those things to earn a living, but the core of your life is the gospel. And every chance you get, you're going to redirect conversations back to what is your main purpose. And whether it's in the business world or you're on the side of the field watching your kid play a sport or you're in a restaurant or you're in a coffee shop. And I don't mean in a weird way, in an annoying way, but every opportunity that presents itself, you're going to talk about the thing that has made the biggest difference in your life. You're going to talk about the gospel. And then finally, here's the last thing. A servant to all for the sake of the gospel means getting a great eternal reward. That's what Paul uh, brings up here in this last passage. He says, they, talking about those who go into strict training, do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That's what I talked about in the video. Those athletes would run and they would get these wreaths, but eventually those wreaths would wilt. They would just disintegrate. They would be gone. They were temporary crowns that they would get. But Paul here says, we get a crown. We get a prize that will last forever. What is this prize? It is eternal life. It is winning others to Christ. It is seeing the gospel spread. It is making a difference in our world that echoes into eternity. 
Paul died about a decade after he wrote these words. He appeared before a guy named Nero, who was the Roman emperor. He was the most powerful man in the world at that time. Um, He was someone who everyone looked at and said, this is the definition of success. He has wealth. He has power. He has everything that the world can offer. Paul stood before him, and Nero ordered Paul to be executed. And everyone would would say about Paul, look at that poor, unfortunate man. He is now going to his death, and he was executed that day. Now, 2,000 years later, we are studying the words of Paul, and Nero is a is a footnote in history. 2,000 years later, Paul is in eternity with God, looking down on us, looking at, at all that has happened because of his faithfulness to the gospel and how it has changed our world. And Nero sits in hell. 2,000 years later, families name their sons Paul and their dogs, Nero. What is the definition of success? What is the right purpose in life? It is a purpose like Paul's, where everything in life is focused on making sure the gospel spreads. That's the kind of purpose that's worth having.